I have looked forward to this particular message for a long time, and I was greatly blessed in the last couple of weeks in my own study, and I hope you will be tonight as well. Um, Before you settle in too much, you know the routine. John chapter 17, let's stand together and honor the greatest prayer in all of the Bible. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have not, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Tremendous, tremendous prayer. You may be seated. There's a Bible verse that in many ways has defined the Christian faith. It's a verse which... A lot of unbelievers even know by heart simply by means of cultural immersion. It's more often than not understood, uh, or rather misunderstood than, than understood, but it's, it's almost like the slogan of our faith. It's almost like our, our motto. 
Even the very verse reference is known by Christians and non-Christians alike, and that is, of course, John 3.16. It's more commonly heard still in the King James Version, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Good translation scholarship since the translation of the King James Version in the 17th century that's given rise to more precise renderings. The English Standard Version, which I preach from, it keeps it simple and precise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Holman Christian Standard Bible enriches our understanding of a couple of words by adding some helpful words uh, with, without violating the sense of the original at all. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But I think maybe the most useful translation isn't a translation at all, and that is the original Greek text. Because in the original Greek text, what we see is that the, the word order helps us determine what the priority, what the importance in John 3.16 is. And, and just three words in, love and God are clearly shown to be the starting point of this truth. We don't find that at the end. We find that at the very beginning. Love and God. And this love is specifically credited to God the Father, who sent God the Son to save all who would believe on Him. Now, in our time in John 17, we've been looking at these objective reasons. And I don't know about you, but my, my faith has been bolstered. Uh, my assurance has been bolstered just knowing that the airtight reasons for our assurance of salvation, our certainty of salvation, it's just the evidence is overwhelming. And we've uncovered so much encouraging material, so much overwhelming evidence that our faith will hold, that God will not let you go, that heaven will admit you, that heaven is your most definite inheritance. But one area of evidence, and it may be the most important one of all, I wanted to save for near the end of this series, and that is the evidence of the Father's love. The evidence of the Father's love. Now, that might seem obvious to you as a reason for our assurance of salvation, but we've all observed that the Father's love can be misconstrued. It can have a shallow definition. It can have a feeble definition, even the wrong definition. And so, just to get our minds thinking here, I want to start off just giving you a couple of misconceptions about the Father's love because they, they abound. Now, I'll just mention three to you this evening. Misconceptions of the Father's love. The first one is that the Father's love is a universal love. It's universal. Even the unbeliever will quote John 3.16 to say that, see, God loved the world. But John 3.16 itself defines what he meant by world, that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ should not perish but have eternal life. That's the world in that context. Now, God loves his creation to a degree, but keeping in mind that all of fallen creation is headed toward melting down and incineration, and considering that the great white throne judgment is very real, it is coming to all who will reject Christ. I don't think we should make too much of the idea of God loving his own creation. Ultimately, God loves the parts of his creation he intends to redeem. And that's, uh, that helps us stay a little bit more accurate. God's love is not universal. That is, a, that is a faulty concept. Another misconception of the Father's love is that it is sentimental love. 
It's sentimental love. This paints the love of God in pink hearts and red balloons as solely an emotion that God feels for you. In fact, this sentimental notion of love is, is very much a man-centered notion that somehow, and I've read this, that God fell in love with you. That's a disgusting notion. There was nothing about you that was lovable inherently. God didn't fall in love with you. He made a decision to love you. That is, that is anti-sentimental. There's no sentiment involved there. Now, obviously, emotion has to be involved in God's love. He's the originator of emotion. He's origin, the originator of love itself. But if God is purely dealing with an emotion toward you, then how do we deal with Psalm 14? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so if you're hoping that God's love for you is primarily an emotion, then what you have earned is not an emotion of love, but an emotion of anger and rage against your rebellion. And yet, this sentimental love, this is the view of God's love presented in our cultural pop Christianity, that our relationship with God is primarily defined at the emotional level, never mind the infinitely more important concepts such as justification and sanctification and obedience. A great example is the popular song by Kirk Franklin called, I Can't Live Without You. And it really epitomizes this sentimental view of God's love because it assumes then that what God wants in return is sentimental love. Just purely musically, by the way, this is a terrible song, but I'm quoting it for theological reasons. But here, here are the deep lyrics. I can't live, live without you. I can't breathe, breathe without you. I can't live, I can't breathe, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't smile, smile without you. There's no me, no me without you. There's no me without you. That song, by the way, offers nothing in the way of distinguishing the Christian from the lost person. No one can live or breathe or eat or sleep without God. Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So at the very best, this song expresses the fact of God's common grace to humanity. But is that the proper response to the love of God? To let him know how emotional I am, just like he is. Now, obviously, in the Psalms, and we, we heard a great mini-message about this Friday night with the sons of Korah being here in the Psalms, we see great emotion certainly expressed in, to God, but it's not sentimental emotion. It is emotion wrapped and surrounded by great theological truths in God-elevating terms. It's not uh, the, the classic Jesus is my boyfriend theology. It's not sentimental love. Now, the sentiment comes later. Obviously, as a result of justification and sanctification and regeneration and, and obedience to Christ and reading his word and walking with the Lord for decade after decade, there is a sentiment that has developed, but that's based on a foundation of truth and a foundation of God's faithfulness to you. One more misconception I would point out, and that is that the Father's love is life circumstance love. Life circumstance love. This is, this is big in Bakersfield, California. That God loves you because you were on drugs. 
or God loves you because you were in poverty or because life has been hard for you or because he feels sorry for you. Now, absolutely, God has pity on the fact that someone's sin in his life has degraded his existence and salvation will most definitely alter many of those circumstances. But Romans 5, 8 says that the love of God has shown that while we were still sinners, meaning while we were judicially, officially enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so to downgrade God's love to be primarily about your life circumstances is now, listen carefully, that is to make the main purpose of salvation about having better temporal conditions, and that is a false gospel. And so we want to be careful that God doesn't, didn't love you because you were having a hard life. So what is the nature of the Father's love? How does it give you assurance? Well, we'll begin and end with John 17, but rely on some other texts as well. Very simply tonight, I want to show you four qualities of the Father's love which freely give you assurance of salvation. And, and I hope you'll be as encouraged by these as I was in examining these texts. Four qualities of the Father's love which freely give you assurance of salvation. The first quality of the Father's love, it is a shared love. It is a shared love. Very end of the prayer, verse 26, really the, the, the highlight of this prayer, the climactic portion, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is an incomprehensible concept. This is unexplainable. Christ would die on the cross to provide for the forgiveness of your sins so that the love of God, the measure, the, the height, the depth, the, the width of the love of the Father for Christ, that that love may be in you and in me. I, I can't explain that. I mean, this is going to be a really short sermon. There's no way to, to comprehend that because we're so undeserving. Why would the God of the universe place his love, the same love the Father has for Christ, in you and in me, the love of Christ himself in us? I think the best we can do is just to understand that the love of God the Father for you is the overflow of the love within the Trinity. The overflow of the love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is a love we can't comprehend the perfect unity and bliss and joy and ecstasy and harmony that's enjoyed in the utterly uh, holy and impeccable triune God. We can get close to understanding it. God's given us two institutions on earth that help us sort of come close. The institution of marriage, where there's a one flesh, one soul, one heart relationship between a husband and wife that is utterly unexplainable. And then the other institution, of course, is the church, where there's a connection between us that's unexplainable. I, I've lost track of how many of you have said, this is my real family. It's an unexplainable bond, but the love that the Father enjoys with the Son and with the Spirit has overflowed. It's eternal love. It's infinite love, which in the sovereign decree of God, can I put it this way, was always planned to spill over the banks of heaven, to extend toward His creation specifically toward human beings, he's designated to be the eternal recipients of his love. And by this, of course, God is glorified and honored. I, I think to a certain degree, we will spend all of eternity shaking our heads and asking why. Why me? And I don't think we'll fully comprehend that, but I do know this. Psalm 16 tells us that 
At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And so as we enjoy those day after day after day, 10 billion years into our heavenly existence with God, he's still revealing new glories about himself. And we'll still say, why me? Because his love is so amazing. Now, far from this being a theoretical or an esoteric or abstract concept here, God has shared the love of the Trinity for you in a very practical way. How has he, how has he done that? Well, very simply, all throughout Scripture, by coming to where you are. That's how he shared his love. He's come to you. In fact, what Jesus says here has very covenantal flavors to it. When Israel was escaping Egypt, Exodus 13 records in verses 21 and 22, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And then, before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the glory of God was dwelling and displayed to the people and came to be in the midst of the people in the tabernacle. Exodus twenty four sixteen, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And then Exodus forty thirty four, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so then as the people of God journeyed toward the promised land, he often assured them that he was dwelling with them, that he was in their midst. Exodus 29, beginning in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. Moses comforted his people before the conquest of Canaan concerning the enemies that were before them. He said in Deuteronomy 7.21, You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Deuteronomy 23.14, The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. And just think of this. The ancient Israelite, after the Exodus, if they were traveling, they could literally look up to see the glory of God leading them, the glory of God in their midst. And when they would settle and set up the tabernacle, they knew that God had made his home, his throne on earth, as it were, in the temple or tabernacle, certainly not confined to the temple or tabernacle, but making that his official home with his people. I don't know about you, but I think it would be very comforting to me to be praying, Lord, can I? Oh, look, there you are. How nice would that be? But could God improve on that? Yes. And it was always his plan to improve on that. John's gospel begins with the very same concept of God being in the midst of his people. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now God, not in the form of a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, but as a man with whom people could converse and eat and fellowship, he had come to earth. And of course, the incarnation of God in the form of Jesus Christ, the central feature of God's plan was that in love, he was sending his son to the cross to satisfy his own wrath against your sin so that full and total and complete fellowship could be enjoyed, complete reconciliation with God. And sometimes we might say, boy, I would have loved to have lived in the days of Christ. And my, my answer is always, yeah, you probably would have been one of the Pharisees who rejected him. So be glad that you're not. 
could God improve on that? On the very person of Jesus Christ himself walking on earth? Yes, he could. And it was always his plan to do so. When Jesus came to earth, he manifested himself to everyone around him, but in a limited geographic location. Both those who believed and did not believe had the opportunity to be around Christ. But almost all of them would reject him. But the day was coming when this would be improved upon. The presence of God would be manifest only and uniquely to those who love Christ anywhere on earth at any time. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will, listen to this, come to him, we will come to him, and make our home with him. That's a a mind-boggling thought, that by sending the Holy Spirit, Jesus is asserting that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have made their home with you and with me. God, who could have rightfully executed Adam and been done with the human race or simply started over. God, who could have judged you for your sin instead of placing Christ as your sin substitute. Uh, God, who could have decided not to even bring you into existence in the first place. God, who made the heavens and the earth, who made all the planets, who made all the stars, every comet, every plant, every animal, everything in all creation. He's made his home with you. That's an astounding thought. By the way, could God improve on you having the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit make their home with you in your very being? Could he improve on that? Now, that will always be a fact of your life for all eternity, always filled with the Spirit of God. But the only improvement then is to combine all the elements throughout redemptive history of having God dwelt among men. Because in the coming kingdom, we will see the manifest glory of God. We will see the Lord Jesus Christ in person, all while eternally filled and overwhelmed by the very presence of God in our lives. All the forms of manifestation of God will be available to you all the time. Listen. The sovereign decree of God to share His love with you, to dwell with you, will not be thwarted God does, doesn't need you in the human sense of, of need, but he does receive glory and pleasure at the sharing of his love, and he won't be denied that glory. He won't be denied that pleasure. And so because of that, your salvation is secure, and his, his love is all the more exalted and honored because you certainly can't keep your salvation secure. In fact, you would jump straight into hell, given the first temptation, if that was up to you. But as one of our favorite hymns says so well, he will hold me fast. I was just thinking about Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And you know what comes next. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is incomprehensible that the shared love of the Father, the end goal is for us to be all together with him, never apart again. 
That's a tremendous, tremendous truth. The love of the Father is a shared love. It's the second quality of the Father's love to give you assurance. It is substantial love. It's substantial love. When I was a young boy, my family failed in many ways. It ultimately fell apart. God is good. God is sovereign. And that plan was so very wise. And I thank him for those difficult days which he's used in my own life. But between the ages of about 10 or 12 or so, there was a family right down the street that befriended my mom. And they had a boy about my age, just a few months older than me. And and this family, in the midst of the chaos and drama of my own family, was a stabilizing force in my life, a stabilizing influence. I ate with them continually. They took me everywhere their family went. We, we, we went to ball games, to, to movies, to picnics. Even on day trips, they took me with them like I was one of their kids. They're so ingrained in my heart and in my mind, I tested this the other day, I still have their phone number memorized. Because I called them so frequently back in the days when we had these phones with things called cords and you just had one number. And to the Lord's honor, the parents came to faith in Christ many years later and I still correspond with them on a, on a fairly regular basis. In fact, mom loved me enough to correct me, to mother me in ways my own mother even wasn't doing. But you know what was always hard? It was when I had to leave when I had to go home, when it was time for their family to be alone. They were a family of four and they often included me to make it a family of five. But at times they would say, Steve, it's time for you to go home. I didn't resent it. I understood it. But it was hard nonetheless knowing that I was close to the family, but I was not family. But not so in the case of the Father's love for you. Paul exclaimed to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3, 17 and following that his prayer for them was this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be, listen to this, filled with all the fullness of God. What a phrase, filled with all the fullness of God, that through the limitless bounds of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this was Paul's prayer, meaning, by the way, that the great Ephesian church, in his mind, wasn't adequately appreciating the love of God. He simply wanted them to grasp the love of God. To what end? So that they could understand what they already have. If you've ever heard anybody preach to you that you need more of God or more of his love, that's not the case. It's not that the Ephesian church needed more of the love of God. They needed to grasp the love of God that was already theirs, that they were already part of the family, the, the perfection of God, the presence of God, the life of God, the power of God, the inclusion of God, of his people into his family. If I could put it this way, God cannot love you more than he already has and currently does. He can't improve on that. In fact, in another letter, Paul uses a word picture to demonstrate the measure of the Father's love for you. In Romans 5, Paul is encouraging believers to be patient and enduring suffering and to stay hopeful with certain Christian hope because they will not hope in vain. Romans 5 verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the very verse that Sylvia and I had preached at our wedding. 
because we knew that the love we had for one another was simply an extension of the love of God for us. But did you catch that picture? It's not that God's love has been sprinkled or dabbed or rationed or distributed. God's love has been poured. It's a word that means flooded into your heart. You have all the love that God can give. And that is absolutely infinite. As a matter of fact, let's consider how substantial the Father's love is for you. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, we need to make some logical connections here. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Was there ever a time that God the Father did not love the Son? Obviously not. So before the foundation of the world, is a, it's an idiom that means has always been. The love of God the Father for God the Son has always been. He has always loved the Son. Now, think about this. The election of the saints unto salvation as described in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Listen for some key words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So let's put these truths in the form of a logical syllogism. If God the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, and if this means he has always loved the Son, then the fact that he loved you before the foundation of the world means that he has always loved you. Can I put it this way? God never started loving with you, loving you. God didn't fall in love with you. God has always loved you. There has never been a time when God did not love you. That alone gives me a ton of assurance. Because if he's loved me, little sinful Steve, for if we were to try to measure a trillion years prior to creation, do you think me having a bad attitude the moment before I die is going to thwart that love? No, it won't. It makes the idea of losing your salvation preposterous and absurd, doesn't it? The Father's love is shared love. It is substantial love. But it is suffering love. It's suffering love. Now, I know we often speak of the sacrificial love of Christ in that he died on the cross for us, and that is true. But sometimes it might be possible to start to merely think of sacrificial love as an academic theological concept, something we read about. And so I want to make certain that we remember that God the Son was not the only one making the sacrifice. God the Father suffered in his love for you. The love of the Father for his elect was such that it would bring great pain, great agony to him. Even such that Jesus from the cross would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there was a judicial separation, as it were, between God the Father and God the Son. And while God the Father was fully receiving and receiving the propitiation for our sins, Can we possibly think that God the Father wasn't in agony in those moments? In those moments, Jesus, in full agreement and yet expressing the emotion of anguish, 
He poured out his emotion as God poured his fury on his dear son. And yes, we can picture this most easily from the son's vantage point, but from the father's vantage point, Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Which would you rather be? The one dying or the one giving your son? I don't know. What, what a horrible, horrible thing to have to endure. But that really leads us to consider then, what was the attitude and the disposition of God the Father toward you, toward us? The eminent doctor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote of the way Christians often view God the Father. And this is, this is worth taking time to read this quote. He writes, so often you and I feel we have to placate God because of sin, sin in us, sin in our mind and whole outlook and thought and sin in the world. We tend to think of God as being opposed and antagonistic to us. We regard God as someone who is unwilling to be kind and gracious to us and to love us. We think of him as someone in the far distance in his eternal glory and absolute righteousness who is not well disposed towards us. And considering this inaccurate picture of God, this extends to our view of how God the Son is interceding for us as our advocate. We can get the picture of Christ, our intercessor, our advocate. That's his ministry right now. But we can get this picture of the Son of God pleading with the Father to have mercy and pity on us and that God the Father is is impatient. He's angry with us. There's smoke coming out of his ears, so to speak, that he really doesn't want to forgive. But since it's Jesus asking with resignation and a divine roll of the eyes, and an exasperated sigh, then God the Father reluctantly maintains your salvation. But your reconciliation with God was the Father's idea in the first place. This is according to His plan. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, Christ's ministry of intercession is God doing the Father's doing. It's the Father's doing. Let me put it this way. Jesus Christ is advocating to the one who gave him the plan to advocate for us and who loved us in the first place. So what is his disposition towards us? I, I think Isaiah 53, 12 helps gives us, give us this picture of how God the Father is viewing us as God the Son intercedes on our behalf. Because Jesus Christ was faithful all the way to the cross, God says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In other words, it was God's intention all along to reward the Lord Jesus Christ with the eternal presence of those the Father loves. You are God the Father's gift and reward to Jesus Christ for his faithfulness to the cross. And to gladly and happily receive the intercession from the Son to himself. And so if we could put it in very, very uh, pedantic terms that we can understand, it's not God the Son saying, Father, I am interceding to you on behalf of this believer and this believer and God the Father saying, okay, look, I, I promised that I would save them, but boy, have you seen what they're doing lately? But sure, absolutely, why not? No, it's Father, 
I'm interceding to you on behalf of this believer and God the Father saying, yes, I receive this intercession and I can hardly wait to see him. And and yes, he is forgiven. Absolutely. Who else might you intercede for? There's a joy and a delight and and a complete receptivity. Why? Because the Father suffered greatly to bring you to himself, to be able to love you. So the Father's love is shared love. It is substantial love, and it is suffering love. And you can have great assurance of your salvation one more because the Father's love is similar love. It is similar love. Well, similar to what? Chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus continues praying, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying that it becomes known to all the elect. That's the use of, his word, of the, world, the word world in this case. That it would be known to all the elect that God has sent Jesus to the earth. Why? Because God the Father has loved his own even as he loves Christ. It's a word that means in the same manner, just as, in the same way. How has God the Father loved you even as he loves Christ? I opened this can of worms and found I could have probably preached for a month on this topic alone, but I'm going to try to reduce it to just a few ways. How has God the Father loved you in the same manner as he loved Christ? First of all, he adopted you as his children. He adopted you as his children. Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, familiar to you for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the glorious moment in the adoption of a child in which the child may now call his rescuer, Daddy. He may now call his new parent, Father. There is certainly the singular Son of God elevated above all, name above all names, Jesus Christ. But he came, Romans 8, 29, that he might be, quote, the firstborn among what? Many brothers. Many brothers. Listen, if we had been given eternal life merely to be the well-provided-for slaves and servants of God for all eternity, that alone would have been glorious. To be saved from the fires of hell and to serve the Lord as the lowest of the low, that would have been enough. That would have been gracious. But the Father has done so much more than that. As a matter of fact, your adoption is really seen in Scripture as the pinnacle, as the mountaintop of the Father's love for you. Did you know that? It's the ultimate expression of His love. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what kind of love, meaning there is no kind that's better. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's a phenomenal way that our love is. The love the Father has for us is even as it is for Christ. So another way that God has loved us even as he loved Christ, he named you his heir with Christ. He named you as his heir with Christ. In the circles of royalty and nobility and wealth, the naming of an heir is a life-altering announcement. Here's our announcement. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, meaning we've proven our salvation by obedience. What does the heir get? Well, the heir gets all that the father has. And in case you know this, here you receive, short of all that Jesus has as God, you receive the benefits and privileges of being a son or daughter of God. Can you even imagine that? I can't fathom that. I mean, I don't even have a rich uncle. So I I don't know what that feels like. But to be given a will, so to speak, that says you you are the heir of God himself. And by the way, this inheritance is absolutely locked in. I always enjoy reading about uh, celebrities and, and, and people in wealthy families that are really, really concerned about the billionaire great-grandpa changing the will at the last minute, and everybody's sweating bullets over this. Not in our case. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Imperishable. It can't go bad from within. Undefiled. It can't go bad from without. Unfading. It will never, never stop being ready for you. Kept in heaven for you. He named you his heir with Christ. There's another way that God the Father has loved us even as he loves Christ. He adopted you. He named you his heir. You will reign with Christ. You will reign with Christ. I mean, after all, going all the way back to Genesis 1, the entire purpose of mankind is to rule the earth alongside God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That's, that's the purpose statement of the Bible, basically. But since sin now has interrupted that purpose, in Christ the elect will fulfill that destiny. Revelation 20 verse 4 speaks of the resurrected saints who reigned with Christ for a thousand years, or will reign with Christ rather for a thousand years. Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12 that we will reign with him. The church of Jesus Christ is pictured in heaven in Revelation 4 as seated on thrones wearing golden crowns. We do not have the attire of slaves. We have the attire of royalty. In fact, Jesus gave a particular privilege to his disciples. Lest anyone doubt whether Israel will be reestablished. Luke 22, beginning in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father has assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is astounding. You are the one who once rebelled against God. You shook your fist against the holy God, against the lordship of Jesus Christ, ironically, and you who have shaken your fist against the lordship of Jesus Christ will become a lord in the kingdom. You are the lords and the kings and the queens that will reign alongside Christ. All because of the Father's love. That's astounding. He adopted you. He named you as heir. You will reign with Christ. Do one more way that the love of the Father for Christ and you are, are similar. You will be newly named with Christ. You'll be newly named with Christ. This is one of the privileges of adoption and that a new name is given. 
Jesus promised in Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Jesus Christ, and we've spent other, other Sundays on this, Jesus Christ will receive a new name. It is the name that is above all names. It is the name that when spoken, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a name which will encompass all that he is. And I don't know what that name is. There isn't any indication in Scripture. It might take a thousand years just to say the name. And we think how glorious is that. Well, Revelation 2.17, Jesus gives another promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone. That just like your Lord Jesus Christ, you too will receive a new name. And I wonder what that name will be. I wonder if it might encompass all the grace that God has poured into your life, all that he has done for you, all that you now are in Christ for all eternity. A new name for a new eternal era. You're like little brothers and sisters. And wherever Christ goes, receiving from the Father's love, short of those privileges reserved for Jesus as God, everything Jesus receives goes to you as well. And unlike an earthly big brother, he likes it when you follow him. That's what Jesus meant when he said in verse 23 that the Father has loved you even as he loved Christ. And so the Father's love is shared love, substantial love, suffering love, similar love. I said four qualities. I decided earlier today I need to give you one more. Just a little bonus because this is important theologically. The Father's love is saving love. It is saving love. And this is an important distinction. Is vitally connected to salvation. Love and salvation go together. God may show mercy without saving. He shows mercy without saving all the time. When law enforcement saves somebody's life, when a, a, a fireman saves somebody's life, when somebody doesn't die, God shows mercy all the time as part of his common grace. He may show kindness without saving When humanity has food and has water and has sunshine and has light, that is kindness. But his love is uniquely connected to his saving work. This is the clincher, by the way. The one who's loved by God is the saved person. The one with whom God has shared his love, given his substantial love, given suffering love and a similar love to his love for Christ. That, of course, is saving love. And so if the Father has set, your, set his love on you, and if you're in Christ, he has, then your future with God is absolutely, absolutely guaranteed. And I might take a little freedom here and just substitute one word. John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, it's a word that means possess, eternal life. I don't think we're in danger of losing the Father's love. We couldn't if we tried. And like a little kid who gets angry with his daddy and maybe kicks him in the shins on occasion, we will never 
dispossess God the Father's love for us. It cannot happen. It absolutely can't. I hope that encourages you as it has me. Could we pray together? Our Father, we're encouraged by the height and the breadth and the length and the width of your love for us. It's incomprehensible. Thank you for giving it us descriptions in little kindergartner language here, Lord, in, in the Bible so that we can have some comprehension. But I, I would put two and two together that if you are eternal and you are infinite, therefore your love is eternal, your love is infinite, and therefore your, the expression of your love is eternal as in, and is infinite. And so in the ages to come, when, when ages upon ages and countless epochs have passed, we will still be discovering and in awe these great truths of your love for us, love which now we see with a little dimness, but we will see in full glory in the days to come. Lord, may it be sooner than later, and we would join the prayer of the Apostle John, amen, come soon, Lord Jesus, so that we might see the love of the Father face to face as soon as possible. But in the meantime, our Father, I would pray for one who lacks assurance this day. I pray that the love of the Father would give him or her the confidence that you have loved us even as you have loved Christ. And take that home to give us assurance and certainty. And we pray for Christ's sake and his glory. Looking forward to seeing our God soon. Amen.